Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Glad that you tuned in this morning. Um, today we're jumping into a new series focusing on the obscure minor prophets of the Old Testament. Occasionally, in my travels, maybe in yours, I've heard from some people that the Bible was you know, written by a bunch of old guys on Middle Eastern psychedelics, or it's a book of fairy tales with a bunch of characters that really don't reflect the real world. When I hear this, I know it means that they actually haven't read the scriptures. And so I personally find the reading of the Bible and its cast of characters absolutely fascinating. Uh, you know, again, if we just start from the beginning, we see that Cain is jealous of Abel. He kills him. Uh, Lamech introduces polygamy into the world. Noah, who was considered the most righteous man of his generation, he gets drunk and eventually even curses his own grandson. Then there's this guy by the name of Lot, who is the most righteous man in Sodom. And when his home is surrounded by a bunch of locals who want to violate his visitors, uh, he offers instead that they can have his daughters. Now, later on, his daughters get him inebriated so that they can get impregnated by him. It just gets more and more weird. Like then Abraham, he plays favorites between his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And then there are issues there. Isaac, he plays favorites between his sons, Jacob and Esau. And those two actually hate each other for about 20 years. Jacob plays favorites between Joseph and his other 11 sons. You know, uh, the, and they want to end up trying to kill Joseph and sell him or uh, eventually they sell him off to slavery and you, you would think that they would learn. You, you would think that. Not to mention, when you look at these guys, all their marriages are a disaster. Abraham sleeps with his wife's servant, and then he sends her off into the desert. Isaac and Rebekah uh, fight uh, over which boy is going to get the right blessing. Jacob marries two wives, ends up with both of their maids as his concubines, and finds himself in the middle of a fertility contest. Jacob, you know... Uh, uh, his firstborn son, Reuben, sleeps with his father's concubine. Another son, Judah, sleeps with his daughter-in-law and then disguises herself at, uh, as a lady of the night. And she only does this because, you know, she's childish since her first two husbands, you know, both sons of Judah, were so wicked that God kills them both. Like, this, you, you can't imagine this. Um, and all of this and more is actually just found in Genesis. Why? You know, it's interesting that just as with this cast of characters that God chooses to work with, every one of us has habits, you know, we can't control, past deeds that we can't undo, flaws that we can't seem to correct, and we're all like sheep. Most Christians know that the Old Testament is important in some way. But when it comes to putting together the details, many Christians can't, right? So it's like we read the scripture and like there's creation and then there's flood and there's a, a boat, right? And then there's a big fish and there's a lot of bagats. And, you know, what are bagats anyway? I'm not quite sure. There's lots of old, 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 old people and there's these crazy prophets doing crazy things. And there's this thing called the wilderness and there's some names I can't even begin to pronounce throughout the whole thing. There's concubines, there's wild poetry, there's freaky visions. And then Jesus comes and things begin to get a little bit normal. And many believers know that the Old Testament is important, but we get stuck. We just really don't know how to approach it. You know, have you ever began to start to read the Old Testament and figured out really quickly that something's off? 
you know, sure, you know, Genesis is the obvious choice to begin, right? It's at the front. But after that, it appears like, you know, am I reading and rereading everything again? It, it, it just doesn't quite make sense. Well, you, maybe you didn't know this, but the Bible is not in chronological order. If you really want to start with the oldest book, you would have to pick the book of Job, but that's a whole other life lesson I'm not going to get into. See, the Old Testament contains 39 books. It's divided into five sections according to emphasis rather than time sequence. And so you have the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch. That, that's the foundation for all the other Old Testament books. The next section we have is the 12 historical books. And they chronologically follow the law, but they're kind of grouped together because they all have this common purpose. And then we have the five wisdom or poetical books. And they're mostly written during the time of 2 Samuel. And they're, they're written by King David and, and, and Solomon. And of course, there we have Job is in there. But Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon. Then we have the prophetical books. And, and they're separated in two categories. You have the major prophets and you have the minor prophets. Now, the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The term major and minor refer to the size of the books and not to the degree of their importance. We need to remember that. And so there are 12 minor prophets. And today we will begin walking there. All right. And so what we want to do is we want to devote one Sunday, one life lesson to each of the 12 minor prophets. And this series will hopefully help you put all the minor prophets into perspective in a Coles Notes version so that you can have a map to help you navigate through the Old Testament. Because look, at the Old Testament matters a lot. We read in Romans 15 that for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures that we might have hope. 1 Corinthians 10 says that these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings uh, for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. And so the Old Testament is meant to serve as a source of hope and to serve as a source of encouragement, a source of inspiration, but also a source of warning in our lives. And so we are to look at these stories and we are to mine the lessons for our lives today. And I have to say this, it, it can be difficult. And what we need to know is, is that all the prophets, both major and minor, are different because they reflect different geographical contexts during the diverse periods in Israel's history. So Israel later divided itself into the two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it's important to understand what's going on in the nation's history, which enemy nations are threatening Israel's borders, what's happening politically, all that kind of stuff. Now, maybe you have or maybe you haven't. There, there's certain terms that are thrown around, pre-exilic, uh, exilic, post-exilic prophets. Certain names, we're just trying to figure that out. These names are a reference to when the prophets spoke in relation to the Babylonian captivity, the exile. When the Babylonians invaded and they took the, the Israelites back to Babylon. So pre-exile, before the exile happened, uh, prophets came to warn of impending judgment. So Hosea, Joel, Amos, they wrote to the northern kingdom. There's another guy by the name of Obadiah. He wrote about this other area called Edom. Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, 
Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, they wrote to warn Judah, the southern kingdom, all pre-exile. And then there's the exile prophets. And, and they wrote to assure the people of God that, that God would eventually restore the land. They were to be those encouragers. And so Ezekiel and Daniel actually wrote from Babylon to encourage the people that God is going to restore the nations during that exile. And then there was the post-exile prophets. And they wrote to assure the people that God would deal with a restored community. And so they might have been tempted to think that because Babylon had defeated Israel, the Babylonian gods were superior to Israel's God, Yahweh. What? One of the post-exilic prophets' jobs was to point out that God was superior and the only reason Israel was defeated is because God was disciplining them. And so you have Haggai, you got Zechariah, Malachi were writing to people who had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon post-exile. How's your, how's your thinking caps going? You're working with me here. Now again, the word prophecy. Very interesting because we assume that the word prophecy has to do with the predicting of future or the foretelling of coming events. And, and this understanding is really only partially true because strictly speaking, the prophet is the one who speaks for God. And so prophecy is foretelling, foretelling not foretelling. And the prophets were called to speak forth the message of God. However, the prophet's message is, is usually told of of some future doom if the receivers of the prophecy don't you know, change their course of action. In fact, the prophets are not primarily interested in the future. The majority of their sermons, the majority of what they said to people, dealt with the present and dealt with the past. Very little revelation was given to them about the future. They were more concerned with the past and the present failings of a nation in their relationship with God, but also in their relationship with each other. And so they focused on the lack of morals in a society, which really began to point to the problems. They focused on people's failure to keep the law. They, they constantly exhorted the people to an internal heart check rather than an adherence of keeping the law. You know, perhaps one of the most famous passages is Micah 6.8 where it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So what we have is a main theme here is that many of them share is Israel's fav failure to keep the covenant. Now, the prophets assume that the Israelites remember the covenants and the laws in Deuteronomy. And as a matter of fact, they make many references to them. And in fact, unless you actually go back and understand Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 30, you can't really appreciate or perhaps even understand what the prophets are talking about. So on your own time, begin to read that. Deuteronomy chapter 28 to chapters 30. And basically, God would lay down the law. He would then promise to protect uh, the Israelites if they were loyal. And God made it very clear to them what would happen if they weren't faithful to him. And what the prophets did was they came along and they would begin to call out Israel for rejecting the ways and the will of God and behaving like every other nation around them, what they weren't supposed to do. And so for the prophets, this critique is not limited to the issues of personal morality, but it extends to Israel's societal, economic, political, and religious practices. It's all of society. God called his people out 
He called them to be a holy nation. He called them to be a royal priesthood, not to adopt the oppressive uh, worldview of all the other nations around them. And if the prophets make the situation sound very dire when we read them, it's because they saw Israel's failure as nothing short than a tragedy. See, God had blessed them with every good thing, with every opportunity to flourish. God's hand was upon them, and yet they chose greed, and they chose selfishness. They chose pride over generosity and love and the fear of God. So you've got to wonder, is there any hope in these prophets? Is there any hope in the minor prophets? Or is this all going to be a doom and gloom series? Well, let me just say, that the resounding answer to that question is yes. The prophets proclaimed a message of salvation. Now, again, most of the prophets include some sort of promise of future deliverance section. You know, um, They would usually give this, a, this message of doom and gloom, and then they would tell the people about the light at the end of the tunnel, and that would give them some hope. So in this world gone very wrong, the, the prophets persistently describe a God who longs uh, for his people to return to him and to receive mercy. And what we learn from the prophets is that God's natural disposition is not anger, but it's something called chesed. And that's Hebrew for steadfast loving kindness. And so God's nature, when you think about it, then gives us hope because the God we encounter in the minor prophets doesn't let go. He's committed to making all things new, bringing about a world of justice and righteousness. And such justice and such righteousness, however, will mean actually a judgment on Israel. Judgment in order to dismantle their sinful behaviors and their unjust practices. And so Israel would actually have to go through some sort of refiner's fire. But God would be faithful, and through that time of judgment, he makes all things new again. Now, the minor prophets are clear about the seriousness of personal and corporate sin. Some prophets focus primarily on idolatry. Others will focus on social justice. And yet they see idolatry and social justice as two sides of the same coin. You know, worshiping other gods twisted Israel's moral perceptions, and that actually led to a moral decline. Some Christian communities, you know, will, today will place evangelism and social justice in conflict with each other, uh, focusing on, on one or the other. And, and those that focus, let's say, on social justice are often accused, well, you guys don't preach the gospel. And then those who focus on evangelism are often accused of not caring for people's needs. You just got a message to give out. The minor prophets actually hold those two in balance. And they recognize that loving God and loving your neighbor properly actually belongs together. And so proclaiming the whole gospel means calling people to follow Jesus, but also loving people like Jesus did, so that in their experience of our love for them, they encounter Christ. The call back to God is also a call back to right living. We see that throughout all of the minor prophets. And that's why in the later minor prophets, it's emphasized, they actually emphasize the rebuilding of the temple as the place where, where people can gather together and worship. 
which is strikingly interesting now in the time that we find us. Because in, in, in worship, Israel was reminded of, it, of its identity as God's people. It was in worship where they recommitted themselves to loving God with all their heart and loving their neighbor as themselves. In worship, they were re-energized in their calling to be a light to the nations. And the similarity is striking, even for us, when we are now able to gather together. Why? Because it's in worship we are reminded of the community of God's people when we gather together. It's in worship where we can recommit ourselves to the loving uh, God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And it's in worship where we are regenerized, re-energized, sorry, in, in being that light to the world and we can go out and make a difference. But we have to recognize that we live in a different time and situation than the prophets did. We live after the cross. You know, as God's people, we don't fall under God's judgment like we read in the Old Testament. And thus, regardless of the similarities that may seem evident between ancient Israel and our day today, we can't simply treat these texts as if they are addressed directly to us. Instead, I suggest that, we, that these books function as a mirror and reflecting back to us maybe our sin that we might not otherwise be aware of uh, and, and inviting us to repent, but just it's a reflection. And furthermore, the prophets teach us something about God's character. They may give us some images of God as being angry at sin, but also deeply saddened by it. And so in this sense, the minor prophets give us a glimpse into the heart of God and God's desire for us, but also for the whole world. So in the series, what we're going to do with each book is that we're going to ask five simple questions. That's going to be the basis of the entire series. Who wrote the book? Where are we in history? Why is this book so important? What's the main message? And how do I apply it to my life? So today, we start with Hosea. Now, Hosea prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel in the days before the exile. Um, his message, it's, it's one of urgency that God's judgment is about to fall. And his name means salvation, which is likely a, a, a reference to his position in Israel as this, you know, he's a beacon of hope to those who would repent and turn to God because of his message. Now, it's interesting because Hosea is commanded to take a promiscuous woman as his wife. Her name is Gomer. And we read it in Hosea 1-2. And this relationship serves as an example of God's relationship with Israel. Hosea was to literally live out God's patience and love. And so what we do know is that Hosea and Gomer had three children. The first son was uh, named Jezreel. Jezreel was known as a, a great plain, known for its beauty, its richness. However, time it was ravaged by numerous battles and murders. There's a history behind it. We won't get into it today. But Hosea's second child was a daughter named uh, Lo-Ruhamah. And Ruhamah refers to God's tender mercy. However, that, that prefix, Lo, reverses the meaning. So her, then her name actually is either means no, no mercy, no pity, no compassion. Yikes. Hosea and, and Gomer have a third child. It's a son called Lo-Ami. Um, Ami means people, so with the negative prefix in front of it, it means not my people. Um, and, and 
technically, culturally, this is probably the most devastating name to the uh, Israel people, the people of Israel. Another interesting aspect is that in Hosea 2.4, there's a suggestion that the second and third child may not have been Hosea's, but actually from an adulterous relationship that Gomer had. So here's the crazy thing. God used Hosea's marriage as an analogy of God's relationship with Israel. God is declaring that the nation had committed spiritual adultery in forsaking him and forsaking the covenant, Deuteronomy 28-30. And Hosea now uses his family as the ultimate sermon illustration. So where are we in history? Hosea lived, he prophesied before the destruction of Israel in 722 B.C. So we know it's back there. Um, In the very first chapter, very first verse, he identifies kings that ruled during his ministry. Uh, The first four, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, they reigned over the southern kingdom of of Judah, uh, while Jeroboam II ruled in the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, when Hosea lists these kings at the beginning, I think it's it's more like a chronological occurrence. In other words, I believe it's a way to emphasize the spiritual climate in which he's ministering. It's a reference for people. When they study the, the logs of the kings, they can see who was wicked and who was good. And it's foundational to understanding the problems that Hosea will deal with in his book. So his ministry is spanned over uh, about 50 years. Now he lived... Uh, um, in 755 to 715 BC approximately, it, it makes him a contemporary of the prophets Isaiah and Micah. So you got to think about it. Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, they're all in this together, right? So he, Hosea preaches to the northern kingdom. He directed the early pro- portion of his writings to King Jeroboam II. And throughout the book, he also refers to Israel and Ephraim. Now, Ephraim was the largest tribe in Israel, and sometimes the whole nation is referred to Ephraim. So if you see that when you're reading it, you need to understand that. So why is Hosea so important? Well, more than any other prophet, uh, his message is, is closely linked to his personal life, more than any other prophet. He marries a woman. He knew he would betray his trust. Um, and by giving his children names that sent messages of judgment on, on Israel, Hosea's prophetic word flowed out of the life of his family. Like I said earlier, the ultimate sermon illustration. And part of me struggles with it. Like, how, what was the effect on his family? And we also see a cycle. So Hosea talks about the cycle of repentance, of redemption, of restoration, and it's evident throughout his entire prophecy, but it's also evident in his marriage. And this also remains intimately connected even in our lives when you think about it. This, this sequence plays itself out in the lives of real people, reminding us that the scriptures are far from some mere collection of abstract statements with no relation to real life, but rather they work their way into our day-to-day existence It comments on issues that impact all of our actions and impact all of our relationships. So what's the main message? Well, Hosea, like all the other Old Testament prophets, is a story of God warning Israel. And Israel ignoring that warning. 
It's that simple. You know, structured around these cycles of judgment and restoration, this book makes clear, its theme is uh, repeats. And, uh, you know, although God will bring judgment on sin, He's always trying and willing to bring uh, his people back to himself. And so throughout the book, Hosea pictured the, the people turning away from God and, and turning towards other gods. And, but God's love for Israel, a nation of people more interested in themselves than in God's direction for their lives, his love still shines through clearly against the darkness of their idolatry and injustice. And this meant that the Israelites lived as if they were not God's people. And though God told them as much through the, the birth of uh, Hosea's third child, remember, Lo Ami, not my people, he reminded them that they would ultimately be restored in their relationship to him. Now, if you found Hosea, chapters 1 and 3, they tell the story of Hosea's marriage to Gomer. It tells the story of Gomer's betrayal of her husband and Hosea's pursuit of her. At the same time, chapters 1 to 3 tell the story of God's love for Israel. And in both cases, the pursuit happens in at least three different ways. First of all, there's provision. In other words, even though Gomer leaves Hosea, Hosea still provides for her basic needs. He doesn't get credit for it. And the same, though, is true for God's provision for Israel. And I'm afraid to say this, but the same is true for God's relationship with us, right? He's our provider. And then there's pain. And uh, we see the pain. And we can, you know, hardly imagine what's going on. Hosea's pain is obvious. But there's also the pain that Gomer experiences. You see, because she leaves Hosea at one point in time, and she gets sold into slavery by her lovers that she ran to when she left Hosea. And maybe you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, where he says pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain. There is so much pain just in the marriage relationship between Hosea and Gomer, but even in Gomer's life when you read it. But can you imagine this is also a reflection of God's heart in Israel. And finally, there's persuasion. Hosea persuades Gomer to come home. And the ultimate persuasion is actually buying her back. He buys her back, buys her out of slavery. In the same way God persuades, he's, he's constantly calling out to Israel. And when you think about it, even today God is constantly calling out to us. So chapter 3, although it's short, it's a powerful theological look at the love of God. As a matter of fact, let me just read verses 1 to 5, the entire chapter. Then the Lord said to me, Go... And love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. How hard is that? This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver, five bushels of barley, and a measure of wine. Then I said to her, you have to live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution. During this time, you'll not have sexual relationships with anyone, not even me. And this shows that Israel will go a long time without a king or a prince and without sacrifices, sacred pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord, their God, and to David's descendant, their king. In the last days, 
They will tremble in awe of the Lord and of his goodness. So even though Israel was unfaithful, God loved them anyways. The love was not so that they could continue in sin, but they, they would return and be faithful. And so God's covenant love relationship demands this obedience. That's God's love language, obedience, right? And the major message from Hosea is, look at God loves you and he pursues you with his love. And so we got to think about that, that God is actually crazy about you. Right? And again, this shouldn't surprise us. He is the Heavenly Father. He created us. He created us for relationship with Him. And so regardless of what we have done or regardless of what we have not done, He pursues us. Think about that. With a faithful, forever love. Chapters 4 to 14 of Hosea are more likely a uh, compilation of his sermons that he preached during his 50 years of ministry. But these chapters give us a good idea of the kind of responses that are possible when we face, um, uh, when we face the, the warnings of God. So how do we take this book and actually apply it to our lives? I think there are a number of responses that we, ha- we have to uh, uh, camp on, especially when we read Hosea. And the first response is, you know, when God is reaching out to us, what do we do? Do we simply harden our hearts against God's conviction? Is that what we do? Because when you think about it, if I'm, I'm looking at this Old Testament book, how does it apply to my life today? Well, we understand that God is constantly trying to speak to us. You know, we, we just did a whole series on that. He's trying to get our attention. He always wants to get us on the right path, but many times we just harden our heart. as in the case expressed in Hosea chapter 5. See, chapter 5 gives us the characteristics of a hard heart. You know, first we have this difficulty in hearing from God in verse 1. God's trying to get everybody's attention, but nobody's listening. And so we usually find ourselves in a place where we think we're not listening to anything that he's trying to say to us. And then secondly, we think we can hide from God. Right? You know, we all know intellectually that God knows all things, he sees all things, but in the midst of our sin... Maybe we rationalize that nobody else knows, right? But God always knows. And so we try to position ourselves in a way so as to nobody can see our sin, but God actually sees our sin. He knows what's going on in the recesses of our heart. And so trying to hide from God or thinking that we can hide from God is a sure indication when you think about it that our heart has grown hard. Not to mention that at this point we would rather sin. And we know that our heart grows hard when we begin to actually have this desire that we just want to sin. Then the, the natural effect of this is that, you know, well, if I want to do that, then I'm just going to be, rely on myself. And we feel we can do it, and we can do whatever we want without anybody's help. But the result of all of this is ultimately that we feel alone. Just read chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. God has not moved, but the hardness of our hearts we end up feeling all alone. And sin does that to us. And the guilt of sin actually causes us to feel as if we are all alone. And so the consequences of a hard heart is that we get increasingly further away from God. Sound familiar? Because I think almost everybody has been there at one point in time. I think the other response is that sometimes our actions don't line up with our words. You know, we, we, we might say that we renew our commitment to God, but in reality, we don't. 
you know, an, an example of what I would call counterfeit commitment is, is evident here in Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, we, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. And as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Now, if you stop reading there at verse 3, you might think, well, finally Israel is returning to the Lord. Look what they're saying. But if you notice verse 4, it shows us that the characteristics, these are actually characteristics of a counterfeit commitment. You know? And what we see is, is all talk it's, it, and no action. It's a confession, but there's no commitment on Israel's part. Israel's words are recorded in, in verses 1 to 3 here because they want it to look right. So they're saying the right things, but God sees right through their words. He sees their true commitment. And just like you and I, we can fool people with our words, but God is not fooled. He sees our hearts. The third response is the only acceptable response, and that is really to repent. And again, it's, it's repentance that when we repent, uh, it, it leads to change. Notice how the, the book of Hosea concludes in chapter 14. Verses 1 to 3 and verses 8 to 9. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all of our sins. Receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him with care and for him. I am like a flourishing juniper. Your fruitfulness comes to me. Who is wise? Let him realize these things. Who is discerning? Let him understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. And so the only way to change is to respond to God's conviction by repenting of our sin. And Let's just face it, God has called all of us to repentance. Now the book of Hosea illustrates that nobody is beyond the offer of our forgiveness because nobody sits outside of God's offer for forgiveness. Do you hear what that says? Let me repeat it one more time. No one is beyond the offer of our forgiveness because no one sits outside God's offer of forgiveness. pretty powerful words you know when we look at this passage gomer is our object lesson she's the picture of israel and we need to see like i said we hold this book up as a mirror we need to see if we are like gomer and the question is not whether god loves us the question is how will we respond to god's love how do you and i respond to god's love israel was pretty bad they totally abandoned God, just like Gomer abandoned Hosea. And we often, like, you know, when we read the scriptures, we often compare ourselves to Israel, and we think, well, we're not as bad as them, you know. We certainly ha haven't forsaken God, right? 
we certainly, you know, we don't worship golden calves, and maybe we don't worship golden calves, but I'll say this. Maybe we actually have other false concepts of God and other things that we actually seek for and make number one in our lives. You know, maybe we don't forsake God, but we mix our dependence on God with our dependence on other things. You know, we see nothing wrong with depending on our own resources and depending on our bank account, depending on our work, our spouse, our kids, even our ministry, just to fulfill us. Maybe we only use God as a force or as a genie to help us in our pursuits. Maybe we need to listen to our prayers. Like, how many times do you ask God to help you do something? You, you see what I just did there? How many times do we ask God to help you do something? Because when you do that, aren't we saying that we can do most of it? You know, that, that maybe we just need a little help from God to finish the tasks. Just a little help from God. Because I think it's a natural tendency for us to want to do things on our own. Our natural tendency, really, when you think about it, is we want to earn our salvation by being good. Just tell me what I need to do and I'm going to do it and I'll be good. But even after we recognize that salvation is by faith, we still have these lists, these do's and don'ts, right? We think that if we change our behavior, we'll be able to accomplish what we want. Whether it's overcoming depression or whatever other bad habit, we are determined to pursue our own self-interest so that we can redefine God. And we've decided what it means to really enjoy life. Because for most of us, it's in our culture, really, to enjoy life is to have enough money so we can buy all the things that we think will make us happy. And so what do we do? We, we teach the prosperity gospel, this message that, you know, God, we expect God to bless us and through that blessing we'll be happy because God wants everybody to be happy. You know, in the same breath, for others, it might be the perfect relationship with the opposite sex, right? You know, because we think that maybe that person will be able to fulfill our deep longings and so we expect God to bring across the perfect mate. And when that person comes along and the marriage is not perfect like we had planned, what do we do? What do you do? What do you do when you pray for something and you just don't get it? Who do you blame? Do you blame God? And when God doesn't do everything we want, we feel that we're justified in resolving our problems with our own methods. And what we do is we try to redefine God to make our actions okay. And instead, we need to be ashamed at our actions, at our unbelief, at our lack of trust. We need to recognize that if we don't, our actions and our dependence on circumstances are going to lead us to a life of spiritual dryness. Why? Because we don't have that living water refreshing in us of what Jesus described himself as. And basically, our problems is really putting ourselves first. Like Gomer, we, we seek after our own interests and we ignore or distort God in the process. We don't recognize that God is truly the source of life and so we pursue these things that we think will satisfy. And when we do that, we experience a dryness in our soul because our own methods do not work. They don't satisfy. And you know what? We're so proud that we choose not even to recognize our sin if it's even staring us in the face. And so what we do is we expect God to bless us because we think we deserve it, because we think we are good. We think that he owes us. 
And of course, then we blame God when things don't go the way that we want them to. Let me ask you, are, are you guilty of this? What are you depending on? Is it money? Is it people? Are you proud? Have you just been trying to do it on your own? Do you, do you think you deserve God's favor? Do you blame God when your plans don't work out? And I think if you're guilty of this, and I th- honestly, um, I think we all are much of the time. And I think the solution is recognizing that we have a problem and we have to relinquish our efforts to control our life and really get to know God get to know his word, get to spend time with him in prayer. And then if we really know him, then we will be sure that he can and will take care of us better than what we can take care of ourselves. And I think Hosea provides an example of God's love to a people who have left God behind. But it also shows us what forgiveness and restoration looks like in a very close relationship. And the problem is that we don't want to depend completely on God because, you know what, we fear that he's not going to come through. That's in the back of our mind. God's not going to come through. And maybe we really don't believe he's in control. Maybe we really don't believe he knows what's best for us. And so we decide what's best for us and we try to control our life with whatever resources we think we have. May I suggest that today, today is a, a day to have a fresh start. A fresh start in depending on God. How? Well, I, I think we simply obey Jesus' command to pray. When you pray, right? Because what does that do? Prayer shows a dependence on God. Prayer is the communication that builds a relationship with God. Not only have I spent the last couple months drawing us back to the Scriptures, I want to start now as we look towards Easter to the idea of prayer. Get into the Scriptures, hear the Word of God, but spend some time building that relationship with God. Because many of us have spent enough time in the Bible. Look at many of us know the facts, like Trivial Pursuit. But what we're probably missing in our lives, and what's often missing in our confessions of the pastor, what often is missing is that quiet time in my life, where we just simply pray with no distraction. And when it all comes down to it, it's, it's, it's not about how much we know. I really think it's about how much time we spend in prayer and communication with God. Because it's in prayer, people. It's in prayer where we encounter God. And Hosea provides an example of God's love to a, a people who left God behind. But it also shows us what forgiveness and restoration looks like in this up-close personal relationship. I think something that we long for. Hosea illustrates that no one is beyond the offer of forgiveness, which is beautiful, right? Because nobody sits outside of God's offer of forgiveness. And certainly, you know, God brought judgment on Israel and those who turned from him, but Hosea's powerful act of restoration, even within his own marriage, set the bar high for those of us who are seeking godliness in our lives, in every area of our life. 
And so the question is not whether God loves us. The question is, how are we going to respond to God's love? How are you going to respond to God's love? Think about that. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this story from the Old Testament. We pray that it touches our own hearts, and I pray that it actually softens us. You know, how we see the tenderness of your love, your, your irresistible nature of a love that waits and hurts and hungers and loves. Lord, I pray that we would respond and that we would understand that no other answer can satisfy us. No other power can meet our need. No other love can heal. So God, help. Help us to return to you and remember that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness and restores us by grace. So God, speak to us. Encourage us. And may we take time for you. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So sanctuary, go now as those raised with Christ, wondering at God's great love. Now go and tell the story of your salvation. But be on guard against all kinds of greed and set your minds on the ways of heaven. And may God reach out to you and may he nourish you. May Jesus Christ renew you in the image of your creator. And may the Holy Spirit lead you with kindness and love. Now go in peace and live the church. We'll see you next week.